of the things that companies are typically really bad at is marketing. Especially with software as a service firms, if you're relying entirely on demos to sell your product, you've made a mistake. And I've seen this for a long, long time. Here is a list of software as a service sales problems from 2007. As of the time of this recording, that's 11 years ago. And as we go through them, I want you to think and compare and contrast to today. Problem number one. SaaS sales problems, 2007. I don't have enough leads. My customers want to customize my application. Getting new customers up and running is too long and hard. My prospects aren't internet savvy. My sales cycle is too slow and takes too much effort. My prospects always seem to want that one thing we don't have. My prospects don't have enough time or interest to talk to my sales staff. Now I can tell you from my own direct experience, these apply equally to ERP, accounting software, and CRM tools as well. Many of which, as you know, are sold as a software as a service solution. Why do you think these things happen? Does it sound like what the solution that is being offered matches up well with the buyer's problem? Now it's 11 years later and look around. All of these problems still exist. I don't have enough leads. My customers want to customize the darn thing. Onboarding is too difficult. Takes too much time. The sales cycle is too slow. It's like they haven't learned anything. I'm going to share a secret example with you of a successful marketing campaign and it was done in a time, this will blow your mind, when the distribution channels that we have today don't exist. That time is 1871, almost 150 years ago in England. You see, I have an interest in a lot of things. It, <laughs> It confuses uh, my new friends because they'll say something and I'll laugh. And I've had some of them say, man, you laugh at some pretty weird stuff. And I'll say, yeah. The reason why is I'm not laughing at what you said. My mind associated that with this other thing and that with this other thing. And then there's a third idea. And that's what I'm laughing at. <laughs> We've also had some conversations where good friends of mine have said, you know what? Sometimes we're talking and you've gotten off topic and gone around to different topics that are connected and come all the way back around to the original topic. <laughs> they like that. I'm like, oh, that's cool. So why are we looking at something from 1871? Well, a guy invented an entirely new genre of literature in this year. And the conditions were right for it. Now, another secret, the conditions are always right. You just have to take advantage of them, figure out how to do it. Because you have to see what is going on. If you can see what is going on, you can plug yourself in and take advantage of it. And there's always something going on. In the context that we'll be talking about, there's always something in the public mind that they're worried about, concerned about. 
what's the point in all this? Where am I going to with this? Well, the idea is, remember when I said SaaS companies suck at marketing and the evidence bore it out with that list of problems that for the last 11 years, they haven't gotten any better at fixing? Oh, they've gotten good at creating tools. There are SaaSes being thrown out left and right, but then how do I get customers? How do I get paying signups? How do I get even free signups? And they don't know or they're not willing to go through the spade work that it takes to get there. Here's the secret. They, your prospects, your target market, need to know about you, at least know that you exist, and something, an idea, something, one point about what you stand for before you ever talk to them. And with the example that we're going to look at here from 1871, we're going to see a way that was done in a very low-tech fashion, because that's what they had. There was no Amazon Kindle. There was no self-publishing. There were no websites. There were no paid ads. That this author changed reality. Now, I said earlier I'm interested in a lot of things, and my YouTube involvement kind of looks like my mind. It hops from topic to topic, right? Like, I'll, I'll get in. I was studying World War II and Heinz Guderian came up and I knew a teeny bit about Heinz and I wanted to find out more about him and I remembered suddenly in the bath, whoa, when I was 16, I bought a whole bunch of war games, tabletop war games off some guy and I remember it was this like big trip in Vancouver where I lived, you know, for the first 34 years of my life, I had to take the ferry across the water and an unfamiliar bus and go into this strange part of town to get this deal that this guy, I don't even remember how I saw it. Maybe it was probably a newspaper ad. I mean, this is in the, probably the early 90s. I graduated from high school in 92. So it's, it's before that. I was probably in grade 11. I'll bet you it was 91. And one of the games that I picked up was called Panzer Group Guderian. And I knew what a Panzer was, and I hadn't studied German yet, so I thought, well, group must mean group. But Guderian, I, I wanted to mangle it and call it Guardian, and, and I, didn't, I didn't explore that anymore, which is weird. But keep in mind, we didn't have the internet back then, so I couldn't just go Google it. And so Guderian meant nothing to me for, like, 15 years. <laughs> and when I started studying Operation Barbarossa and, and the invasion, which is the invasion of, uh, of the Soviet Union in Hitler's time, you find out, you run into Guderian pretty quickly. He's the tactical tank commander, basically. He's the mobile tactics guy for the German uh, mechanized forces. And so finally I realized what Panzergroup Guderian means. It's his tank group. Oh, now, the Battle of Smolensk, which is on the way to Moscow, is the subject of Panzer Group Guderian, the war game. And so I YouTubed it a little while ago and found out that's what it was about. Because I'd sold that game long ago, right? And I, I didn't even remember what the topic was, really. Other than that it was something about the Eastern Front World War II. So here I am watching this, I think he's Scottish, uh, YouTubers video on the game, the war game. He's bought a back issue of it. There's sites that you can buy digital rights to a game 
and get the content, download it, and print it at home. And I was like, wow, I'd never th thought of this before. It sounds simple, right? You print it out and you play it. And, and I thought, wow, the savings on that must be tremendous because you don't have printing costs from the, the game maker anymore. They don't have to create something, box it, put it on a hardback map surface and ship it and warehouse it, send it, put it on some distributor's shelf and hope that it sells, right? Totally different business model. And so the cost savings are transferred onto you. Isn't that great? As a money-grubbing capitalist, I love that. Now, I'm watching this guy's video and I'm thinking, yeah, he's low-key, but I like him. And so I'm going to subscribe and I'm going through his list of other videos and I see, huh, he started out as an art channel. The guy is good at uh, like watercolor of pen and ink doodling and that kind of thing. He's an older guy. And then he starts to change after about a year into his channel. This is fascinating for me to, to look at as a marketer, right? It's like, oh, these are getting hundreds of views, these art, art videos. And these war game videos can get thousands. So why wouldn't you, right? If it's just as interesting to you as the art stuff, why not? You're going to get a lot more views for that. And he intersperses some art videos here and there. And one of the videos that he has, a video series, is about something called the Battle of Dorking, 1875. And I'm like, huh? Because, well, there's two things going on here. Now, I'm pretty good with history, as you may have guessed. But I've never heard of a place called Dorking, and I'm not aware of anything happening in 1875. I mean, this is like the Crimea was 1850 and 1870-71 was the Franco-Prussian War. And then you really don't have anything other than saber-rattling and sort of crises, right? Fashoda and that until 1914. So what the heck is the Battle of Dorking, 1875? And so I start Googling, because I have that option now, and it's time for my mind to hop. <laughs> it likes doing this. And I find out, yeah, as I sus you know, suspected, Dorking is in Britain. It's in southern Britain on the coast. And I'm still thinking, yeah, but nothing happened in there in that time. Well, maybe it's one of those transplanted names from the home continent to the new world. Like you get Birmingham, right? Or Tottenham or York. Maybe it's someplace in Africa. That would fit the time period. I'm Googling and I've realized, I come to the conclusion, there's a great reason why I fail to recognize the date or the place. And it's this. The Battle of Dorking in 1875 never happened. What did happen is much more interesting and of great value to us. We're looking at it from the marketing eye, that lens. It's important to keep in mind contextually that this had just happened. Germany... A brand new upstart nation had just beaten what had been thought of as the best army on the continent, the one fielded by France. Bam! 1870-71, Franco-Prussian War. Bam! It's over. Germany's on the rise. Yes, Britain is the top world power, great navy, pretty good professional army, but it's spread out all over the world, policing colonies. Britain's watching warily this fresh, great power rising across the water. There's a British officer named George Chesney. And British officers were divided into two types. 
you want to look at it this way, it's geographic. Some went to India and fought there and got their experience there. And that is a very different kind of place than the second location, which is South Africa. But that's where people went. Now, Chesney was an Indian officer, right? He went to India. And he was in the Corps of Engineers. That's what he did. He helped build things. And, and he did that in Delhi. And then he was brought back and did some stuff at home. And this fight has just happened. And it changes the way everybody is viewing continental Europe, who lives in England. The arch rival of England to this time has been France. Hundreds of years. Going back to the Norman Conquest, even. In 1066. Long time. Now, France has been beaten and Germany is the new bad guy. That's what's on the public mind. And they're worried about invasion. What if these great Prussian armies show up on the shores of England? Well, Chesney, who's now a general is pretty alarmed at the state of what is the home army. Those armed forces are too spread out, they're poorly equipped, and he thinks, geez, man, the Germans could just brush us aside. It's important as modern day viewers to remember that the public already had this anxiety about a German invasion. And you may think, well, how's that relevant to us today? Well, as I said earlier, there's always some anxiety going on in the back of the public mind. If we were to jump in a time machine and go back to 1997, 21 years ago at the point of this recording, people were not worried about terrorism. People were not worried about dirty bombs. People worried about the coming war with China. And American officials, current and retired, were publishing books about America's lack of readiness and the fact that defense spending had gone soft and that the budget wasn't there to get the forces ready for this upcoming battle with China. That was the anxiety that was going on two decades ago in America. All of us have forgotten this. There's a bit of a resurgence of this coming today, by the way, mostly driven by trade. September 11, 2001, everybody knows that changed the game for everybody. Now terrorism was the thing. Well, what TV show springs to mind about counterterrorism in the early 2000s that took off like a freaking rocket? And is now kind of seeming sort of quaint and outdated, still very entertaining. I enjoy it, but it seems a little behind the times today. 24, right? Jack Bauer. That was something that was ripe for the times and was a great success because it tapped into the anxieties that people had. Oh my gosh, terrorists are coming here to do awful things on American soil. Look! There's an example of it right there. It happened. And many other awful things could happen and let's have a show about a heroic American agent doing counter-terrorist stuff and undoing these awful onion layer plans. Big time hit. Back in 1871, in the light of that victory of the Prussian army over the French and the Anglos suddenly looking across the water going, uh-oh, <laughs> what's coming next? General Chesney very deliberately decides to write a short story about an invasion of England. And it's called The Battle of Dorking. And he said, hey, 
I've got this, quote, useful way of bringing home to the country the necessity for a thorough reorganization might be a tale, describing a successful invasion of England and the collapse of our power and commerce in consequence. So you hear the deliberate genesis of this idea. Let's use the anxiety of the times, what people are already thinking about, fuel for the fire, and give them an instrument, this short story, to generate change in the army. Because Chesney is a general, he understands warfare, how the military works. He's going to write the thing in a factually correct manner. And there's an existing piece of fiction which gives him the model for his narrative. Remember, this is a new type of story. Chesney is going to invent the invasion genre. It's an alternative history piece. That's the phrasing we would use in modern day America. Isn't that cool? The Battle of Dorking describes an invasion of England by a German-speaking army. I kind of laugh about this because like, oh, we wouldn't want to offend anyone. I mean, it could be the Austrians, right? But no, it's the Germans. They're far better equipped and drilled and they rout the British forces, which are pretty ramshackle. England falls, the empire is disbanded, and that's it for the English. Now this causes a huge stir. I mean, people go freaking nuts for it. Just like they did for 24. Chesney's short story is published in Blackwell's magazine in the first week of May, 1871. And it goes to subscribers, it goes to clubs. Remember the British have those clubs where gentlemen go to sit and be left alone, kind of <laughs> read and whatnot. And bookstalls. And it causes this huge division of opinion, just like you see today. Some see it as this awful betrayal of their armed forces. Oh my gosh, you're talking down to about our people and saying that we suck, and what are the Germans going to think? Others are saying, well, uh, maybe this is actually a really good alarm call. Maybe we need this. And it ends up getting debated in Parliament. The big issue is conscription. In order to have a big army, the size of which the Germans and the French put together, they would have to have conscription. Now, in his story, Chesney has to get rid of the British fleet because that is this superpower thing that would stop an invasion, no problem. So he invents this magic device that just destroys the fleet and leaves the British Isles open to being invaded. So his theory is that conscription is the solution for being a European military power in this new era. At the end of the week, the 8th of May, 1871, the London Times publishes this article, and Chesney is, has, has released this as an anonymous author. This really ties into what's going on with Trump today about an anonymous attack in the uh, New York Times. Here's a quote from that article. It is really hard that the keynote of a new panic should be struck at the very moment we are doing our best, at no small cost of money and controversy, to put an end to old ones. On the 25th of May, Blackwoods, the magazine, receives this telegram from their London office. It says, reprint 500 magazine. We have 75 left. Also, complete Battle of Dorking at once for publication next week. And they come out with pamphlet editions of his story. More reprints. 
it gets translated into Dutch, French, German, Italian, Portuguese, Swedish, and ends up in colonial markets. A whole bunch of responsive fiction comes out. This is very interesting, where other authors take his premise and turn it to their own version. The other side at the Battle of Dorking. What happened after the Battle of Dorking? The Battle of Dorking, a myth. A German periodical publishes the story a little bit later in the month with this. This is a translated opening. This is such a significant story that we presented in translation without regard to the entirely mistaken opening account in which the author represented Germany as eager for war and for territory because it contains a number of truths about the British situation and because it is written in an unusually attractive manner. <laughs> so the Germans are like, whoa, 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 we're not warmongers like that. It, you guys are misreading us, but look, this is a great story and you need to read it. <laughs> so the split opinion about the preparation of the armed forces, was this story unnecessarily alarmist and painfully unpatriotic? Or is it a genuine warning? I'm told it was debated in Parliament and it did lead to reforms. Instead of conscription, there was a volunteer force that was created. But the biggest thing that I want you to notice is the public nerve that it struck. A whole bunch of copycat novels come out and people are talking about it for a long time. In fact, there's kind of a running joke at the time, but if you got a bruise or something or a cut, you would just laugh it off and say, like, oh yeah, I got this at the Battle of Dorking. Now that is entering the public consciousness. And if you want to succeed in marketing, this is a great way to do it. Perhaps you could invent an entirely new genre. The first place I recommend you look is at the anxieties of your target market. It doesn't have to be the public. It could be just your target market, like I don't know, aerospace manufacturers or tech companies. What do software as a service companies, what do those founders have anxiety about? What do their sales departments have anxiety about? What would they latch onto that they already believe to be true that you could perhaps fictionalize, entertain them with, and offer your own solution? Instead of a white paper, white papers are tremendously boring aren't they? They're stiff and wooden. These days they're sort of see-through as well, like, oh, like, obviously you're going to recommend your solution to this. But I believe, at any rate, that as entertainment, as a story, it's far more consumable. People will tolerate it a lot better and may not even notice that you're recommending a solution. That is how to get in front of your target market, get them to consume your information and come to the same conclusions that you have, that you would like them to, and then be aware of you so that when you continue your marketing and you approach them or they come to you, they already know who you are. They already know what you stand for. They already know what the problem and the solution are. Far better, isn't it, than running demos, trying to grab people by the collar or their jacket and say, no, 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 stick around, watch this demo, look at these features, aren't these features so great? Isn't this really that cool? No, it's not to them because they have no buy-in. That's why demos alone don't work. But if they already believe in something and you've tapped into that, now you have power. If you'd like to talk about what possibilities there are 
for this kind of marketing in your organization, in your market, go to the Gold Star website and book a call. And we'd be happy to talk with you. Thanks for listening.